Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I'd like you guys to go to Acts chapter 9 to start. We're going to go from there to Colossians, but there's just one, one verse I want to talk about in Acts chapter 9. If you guys were at the Bible study this past Wednesday, I talked about it a little bit then, and I'm going to go over it in more detail this morning. I was uh, in prayer this week, in my times of prayer, just asking the Lord what he, what he wanted for our community. And he essentially brought me back to the basics and kind of exposed something to me that's one of the most basic tenets of Christianity that is actually the one that's most overlooked, the most neglected, and I would say even the most doubted. And in worst case scenario, it is either just cast aside entirely or it's so watered down that we don't actually understand what it is that we're saying. Now this phrase that we're going to talk about this morning is Christ in you. That's the subject. You could also call it the title for this message. And so I'm, I'm praying and I'm thinking about this. I've re I'm reading these verses in Colossians and Ephesians, and we're going to look at verses in each one of uh, Paul's four epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. We're going to look at some verses in there. And there's this reoccurring theme in especially those four epistles, which is this Christ in you concept or this Christ living in you concept. And we've, so, we've gotten so far away from what it actually means that when we say it, it's more a concept. It's more mystical. It's, it's not something that we can actually tangibly touch and experience. Now, I know that it is a spiritual principle. Christ in you is a spiritual reality, but it produces effects in our, in our lives. And the idea here, we're going to get into this in more detail in a bit here, but the idea is that when we believe Christ is in us, Christ will come out of us. In other words, the, the, the life of Christ is your reality when you actually believe that he's in you. And without exception, if Christ is not coming out of you, you don't believe that he's in you. So if you can go to any Christian and just say, do you believe that Christ is in you? Oftentimes we just throw out the statement, well, yes, of course I believe Christ is in me. But Jesus said, and we'll uh, cover this primarily in this message in John 14, 12 as a little bit of an introduction. He said that he who believes on me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go to my father. So he said, what essentially reveals that you believe on me? And when he says believe on me, New King James translates that, translates that as believes in me. But that word in or on in the Greek is essentially the, a word that means he who believes concerning me. So it's his emphasis is that if you're believing what I'm saying, and if every part of the Christian doctrine concerning me, you actually believe, you will do what I do. If you see what I see, you'll do what I do. If you believe what I believe, you'll do what I do. And so that's why, and especially in 1 John, it talks about that if the love of God is truly perfected in you, if you truly know him, and if you're truly abiding in him, you will walk as he walked. That's what 1 John says. And so the measure of whether someone is truly a follower of Jesus is not their profession. It's not, it's not what they profess to believe. It's how they live. And so if we're making the emphasis our profession instead of our lifestyle, then we're so diluting the gospel and making it solely and exclusively just a religious confession that has no power, a form of godliness, an appearance of godliness, style, but no substance. And so we really got to get down our belief in this Christ in us concept. And that's going to be the subject. So in Acts chapter 9, I would like us to look at Verse 32 of Acts chapter 9. 
Acts chapter 9, verse 32. And I'm just going to show you guys in this passage a practical, real example of what it looks like for a person who believes that Christ is in them. So verse 32 of Acts 9 says, Now it came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. So first of all, Peter just finds this guy. His average everyday life happens to stumble across a man who's been paralyzed for eight years. And it says in verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. One miracle, an entire region comes to Christ. One. That would be pretty cool. But here's the thing. So I'm reading this and the Lord showed me something about this verse I've never seen before. Peter walks into a room, happens to stumble across a guy who's paralyzed, needs a miracle. He doesn't consult God about it first because he doesn't need to. He just says, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. And King James says, he makes thee whole. Present tense. Interesting because G- or Peter is associating himself with Christ as though him being in the room is the same as Jesus being in the room. So he doesn't say, I'm going to pray for you. He says, Jesus heals you. This is not just about what he said. It's the life that he lived, that this moment in Peter's life actually demonstrates what he believed. So essentially what's being said, and this is kind of the point I want you guys to remember for now, and I would encourage you to write this down if you're taking notes, which is that the power of Christ will truly be active in your life when you make no distinction between your potential and Christ's potential. This is how Peter's living. He's saying, if I'm in the room, Jesus is in the room. If I'm praying for you, Jesus is praying for you. If I'm healing you, it's Jesus healing you, period. That's why Peter, as a man, just like any one of us, nothing special about him. In fact, in Acts chapter three, he made a very important statement before he healed another paralyzed guy. This is earlier in Peter's life. And he said, after the miracle happened, he said, why do you look at me as though I'm somebody special or as as though I have some special power? I'm only a man. His point was, there's nothing about me that makes me more special than you. He's just one of the first followers of Jesus at this point. So he believes Christ is in him. He walks into a room and to him, there's no difference between his potential and Christ's potential because if Christ is truly in him, then anything he would do would, was, is what Christ would do. So the power of Christ is truly going to be active in your life when you make no distinction between your potential and Christ's potential. So we are going after that conviction. And if we can't make that statement with full confidence that it is our reality, then we're not going to see Jesus works active in our lives. Period. So that's why when we approach somebody who's sick, broken, or hurting with the attitude that I will attempt to pray for you in hopes that God will maybe acquiesce to my request and heal you, help you, comfort you, console you, whatever it is. We're praying from a place of victimization in many cases. We're praying from a place of doubt and we're praying from a place of what is actually a false 
identity, our false self-image. Because Jesus himself said, again, John 14, 12, if you believe on me, believe concerning me, the works that I do, you will do also. Christ in you. So our goal then is to really see, to, to see the fire, the power, the grace of God really actually pouring out of you in your everyday life. It requires you go back to the, one of the most basic tenets of Christianity, which is Christ is in me. And if we can't believe that, we can't really believe anything else. I'm going to explain why later. So this is Peter's lifestyle. This is a real example of this. So he's in the room. Jesus is in the room, period. So now let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. So when the Lord showed me that in Acts chapter 9, and the way that it went down was I was, before I was reading my Bible, I, I just asked the Lord, what do you want me to read? You know, I didn't have a particular agenda as to what I wanted to read or study. And he said, I want you to read Acts around chapter 9 into chapter 10 and 11. There's just something in there I want to show you that you haven't seen before. That was what came up in my heart. So I read it, read that verse in Acts 9, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is one of the most basic things you could ever read in the Bible. And yet, for some reason, I feel like I don't really believe that the way that Peter did. Because would we say that? I mean, yes, Peter's an apostle. He's one of the greats in that sense. But he said, there's nothing, nothing special about me. So if we were in a room with that same guy, most of us would not pray that way. Nor would we talk that way. What does that indicate? We don't believe Christ is in us. You can say that all you want, but if you're not living and talking like it, then you don't believe it. So one of the things that the Lord showed me about this also was he said that one of the mistakes that a lot of Christians make is that they assume that they're good or that they're satisfactory in, in certain parts of their beliefs just because they can articulate it, because they can memorize and quote the scriptures. Because we think that doctrinal perfection, in many cases, is the ability to know, to teach, to explain something that we know. So whoever's got the most scripture memorized, in many cases, is the guy that knows the Bible the best. But that's not actually what the Bible teaches. It's not about how much you memorize, how much you can quote. It's about how much of it you live. If you're not becoming what you're reading, you don't know it, period. I don't care how much scripture you have memorized. I don't care if you've read the Bible ten times. If you've read the whole Bible ten times all the way through, but you're not living it, you don't know it just reality. So if we're going to move on from Christ in you and say, oh, I know it. I've read that so many times. I can quote Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, the life of live in the flesh, live by faith in the son of God, blah, blah, blah. Move on because I know it. Making a mistake. So the Lord basically revealed to me what I would just call in prayer, a rebuke over the whole body of Christ, which is essentially you've moved past these elementary principles that you haven't even believed yet. So he said, don't move on to, Paul called it in Hebrews, don't move on to perfection yet, but let's return to the elementary principles of Christ. Because you, you have to first lay this foundation of what he called repentance from dead works, faith toward God, baptisms, laying on of hands, these basic principles. He said, if you don't get these down, and if you can't live them, don't move on to anything else yet. So we've got to get back to the basics, not to know them in our ability to communicate them, but to live them. And so this entire week, I've just been stuck on this Christ in you phrase, and I've been going back to the same scriptures I have many, many times and haven't been able to get past them. 
And so the, the past few Sundays, we've been talking a lot about the fire of God and asking for, for power and for boldness and, and all that is good. But what the Lord essentially showed me was that, hey, I want to give this to you guys, but you really have to go back to the basics first and get those down. Because otherwise you won't have the integrity to be able to uphold or maintain or steward what it is he wants to give. So going back to the basics. So Colossians 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 24. Colossians 1, 24 says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So Paul is saying, I've been given a ministry for you, for your sake, for our sake, because we're the church and us walking this out is going to fulfill the word of God. And he calls it, he also calls the word of God in the next verse, verse 28 or 26, excuse me, the mystery. So he calls it the mystery. Then he says, the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So he's saying the word of God that's being fulfilled, the gospel that all of us have been talking, talking about for so long, for thousands of years is something that has been hidden but has now been revealed. And then he says, revealed to the saints, verse 27, to them, to the saints, to us, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So essentially what he's saying is that when the church fulfills the word of God by walking out the gospel, it is God making known the wealth and uh, another biblical word would be the fatness of this gospel. It's essentially saying like the abundance of what we have, the glory of what we have is being revealed through us to the unbelieving world. So God is showing something about himself through us to the world. He calls it the mystery because it once was hidden. Now it's revealed. So then he says, I'll read verse 27 again. To them God willed to make known where are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or complete and fully furnished in Christ. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Okay, we're going to stick to verse 27 for now. What is being revealed among the Gentiles through the saints? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's all that it is. Now, here's an interesting thing that a lot of us don't really think about. The average Christian, I should say. When Jesus died and rose again from the dead, it says that he specifically appeared to 500 brethren at once. First, it was the 12 apostles or the 11, I should say. Later, others that uh, accumulated to the number of 500. So 500 specifically appointed witnesses saw Christ resurrected in his glorified body. And that was it. He did not appear to any of the Pharisees. He didn't appear to any of the people that actually were demanding that they, he appears to. He didn't oblige to that demand. 
So it's 500 specific witnesses. Then before he ascends to the right hand of the father, he says, I'm sending you out to be my witnesses. In other words, I'm sending you out to be the people who have experienced my power so that they will know me through you. Then you get into verses like this, where it talks about Christ in you. And then Galatians 2.20, which I quoted already, says that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives, or King James says, Christ liveth in me. The idea is that if Christ is alive, he shows himself to be alive through us. So when we're asking for God to make himself known to a person, and we're praying for God to make himself known and that they would believe, the whole point of his resurrection was that he would rise to bring us out of the grave of sin and death with him to be brought into the newness of life that he lived in through his resurrection. He gives us, gives that resurrection power to us. He gives us that newness of life. And he says, just as I am risen, you are risen out of sin and death. You go forth with my power, with my promises, with this riches of the glory of the gospel and you living it shows the world that I'm alive, even though they don't see me because they see you or they see me in you. And so then the, the Lord brought this up on Wednesday at our, our, our Wednesday Bible study. And so I, I said this in, in our discussion and then I wrote it down because I just remember just feeling like this was a really key thing to remember. So this is another statement I want you guys to write down, which is, that we should take this stance that if Christ cannot be proven to be alive in me, the world might as well conclude that he's not alive at all. We know that he's alive, period, regardless of whether we let him be alive in us. But from the perspective of the world, because they're the Gentiles watching this whole thing unfold, right? That Colossians talks about. So if Christ cannot live in me, how are they seeing the resurrected Christ? How, how can we be witnesses, which will then allow them to witness Christ in us if Christ isn't allowed to live through us? So we're not actually praying for God to give us the apologetic competence to be able to defend the faith logically, reasonably. Even though I agree that that has a place, that's not the whole point of the gospel. That's not you believing for Christ to be in you. That's you believing for Christ to live apart from you and for you to just be able to logically explain when in first Corinthians one, it says that if it was, it's actually, it says through wisdom, the world did not know God. So if I speak with wisdom of words, I make the cross of Christ of no effect. So if my emphasis is on my wisdom, the word means the rhetoric, the logic, the articulation. If that is how I preach the gospel with wisdom of words, I'm completely removing what gives the gospel power, which is Christ in me, Christ in you. So like I said, apologetics have a place, but if I must have that for the gospel to be real to a person who witnesses my life, then Christ is not living in me, not outwardly or not, not expressively. That's why I don't want us to overemphasize our ability to articulate the gospel or to defend it by wisdom of words. Because if that becomes the emphasis, you're stripping the power away from the gospel. That doesn't add any power. It doesn't add purity to your life either. That's not going to make you free from sin. The power of Christ will. 
So Christ in you, the hope of glory. I just find it interesting that in summary, he sums it all up, boils it down and says, look, you guys, the gospel is Christ in you. If it's not Christ in you, then Christ might as well be gone. You might as well be non-existent if he's not in you. Everyone around us is asking for Christ to make himself known, for him to be real, for, for them to see him. What's the biggest complaint from people who are either agnostic or atheist or just doubt Christianity? It's always, well, I'll believe God when I can see him. And there's a lot of arguments against that that you could use with apologetics, but the point is, aren't they supposed to be able to see Christ in us? Then they don't have that complaint anymore. And then it totally makes sense when you hear Jesus say something like before his death and resurrection, he tells his disciples that it's better for you that I leave. It's better for you that I go away to be with the Father. Because if I don't leave, then the helper will not come to you. The helper was in reference to the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ in you. That is Christ in you. So his point was, if I don't leave, I can't multiply myself in the earth. If I stay here, I'll be Christ as one man. Even if I live as an immortal human being, imagine Jesus walking around to this day the same way he did 2,000 years ago. He'd be basically like the, you know, better equivalent of the Pope, you may say. People fly in from all over the world to see him and to touch him and to touch the hem of his garment. And, and then at that point, some of us might believe, well, then the world would believe in him when they can see him. Do you realize that when Jesus was alive in the flesh like we are 2,000 years ago, still half the world didn't believe in him? Half of the Jews, they, they would not, they rejected him as Messiah. They rejected him as the son of God. They called him a blasphemer because he made himself out to be God and calling himself the son of God. He forgave sins as God forgave sins. He did all these things that are characteristic of divinity and yet they still rejected him as, as Christ, the Messiah, and as the son of God. So don't think that if Christ were here bodily the same way he was then, that the world would then believe. Jesus said the only way the world will be given the witness that makes them accountable for their belief is that if I live in you, multiply myself through the church so that you can be the fullness of me that fills this whole earth. That's what he said. And it's in uh, Ephesians 1, which is where I want to go next. We're going to look at verses in each one of these four epistles that I've mentioned. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 17. Ephesians 1, 17 through 23 is a portion of what we call the epistle prayers, which essentially means when Paul wrote these epistles, especially Ephesians and Colossians, he wrote to the church what he was praying for them. And so in many of these cases, this was near, uh, near the end of Paul's life in really the veteran stage of his ministry, if you will. And he's writing to them a letter that is going to continue through the ages that will never pass away, but be remembered to this day. We're reading Paul's letters. Now, if we're going to, if we're to put ourselves in his shoes, just think of it this way. Let's say you're a leader of, uh, of a ministry and you've helped found all these different communities and churches and all these people look to you as kind of, kind of a foundation stone next to the cornerstone of Christ, of the gospel. They're looking to you to be the kind of a source of their doctrine. Because Paul was given that authority by Christ. 
Now, if we're, if we're that, that kind of person, now all these people are coming to us and saying, what, what is it that you want us to pray for ourselves? Paul says, well, here's what I'm praying for you. And here's what I want you to remember. He's got one letter. And back then it was very expensive and quite a laborious process to even write a letter at all. So like third John, for example, which is one of the short, I think the shortest epistle in the new Testament. Third John, extremely short is, is about the average size of a letter back then for Paul to write Ephesians and all the other epistles, especially first and second Corinthians is not cheap. It's very expensive. It's a very laborious process. So he's like the one prayer that you guys are to take away into the rest of your lives and into the rest of the church and posterity. This is what you need to remember. So this is like the thing we're supposed to pray for ourselves and for others. That's how important this prayer is. So this is just not like, this is not a sample prayer. This is not, you can try this way. You can have more freedom in how you pray. He's basically saying like, no, this is the thing you guys got to stay stuck on for your whole life. So if we read it, verse 17. Oh, let's, oh, 16, verse 16. Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 17, this is the prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory, there's that phrase again, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ Jesus, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, before I go back and cover this in detail, notice something at the very end of this prayer. He says, the church or his body is the fullness of him that fills all in all. If you go back to Genesis, let us make man our image. Male and female, he created them. And he says, let them subdue the earth, let them have dominion over the earth, subdue the earth. And then he says, let them fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over all the birds of the air, fish, fish, the sea, beasts of the earth. Let them fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth is brought into this present day with Paul in the New Testament writing this. And he says, you are the image or body of Christ that fills this earth with him. Just like in Genesis, the original calling, fill the earth. He was not just talking about have a ton of kids. That's part of it. But if you're filling the earth with a ton of kids that aren't following Jesus, you're not filling the earth with his image. You're just taking up space. His point is, fill the earth with me, the fullness of me, which is if we're truly followers of Jesus, us, we are like Christ copied, duplicated, replicated, I think would be a better word, to fill the earth with him everywhere. It's not Jesus growing into this giant gargantuan creature that every eye can see. The point is, if you place any human being, any follower of Jesus, anywhere on the planet, they can witness Christ and his life and his power, his identity, his image, his characteristics in that human being everywhere. That fulfills Genesis 1. That was the calling on mankind. So that's what this filling thing means. So then you go back. 
he says three things we're to pray for all under a single category of knowledge of him. So he says to give you the spirit of wisdom and understanding in knowledge of him. That's the first thing. That's the overarching category. That's the kind of umbrella under which we get the rest of it. Notice understanding. You could call it wisdom is the principal thing. You can read about this in Proverbs chapter one. It says wisdom is the principal thing in all you're getting. Get understanding. That's what Proverbs says. The principal thing, the thing you go after that you seek as hidden treasure in all of your getting. If you're going to accumulate anything, let it be understanding. So Paul echoes that same thing to give you what? Number one, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Notice that he does not say that you would learn how to defend the gospel, that you would learn how to fix your marriage, that you would learn how to evangelize to these different groups of people, that you would have a six-step program to healing or recovery, that, that you would really dig into like the root cause of all your issue and all the issues and get really get into this inner healing stuff and find out generational curses and this root and that root and how you might be taking this into your present from your past and all this stuff that we learn. And, and Timothy uh, or Paul writes to Timothy and echoes that kind of concept and basically saying, always learning, but never having come to the knowledge of the truth. So what's the point? We're not to gain wisdom and understanding to understand our issues and thinking that the world's definition of a psychological, physical, or excuse me, emotional healing. That's not what we're going after. He's saying the understanding you're to draw is understanding of him. The truth that outweighs everything else you could learn. So then he, he makes that overarching statement, knowledge of him, then he defines that. So he says, first thing, the hope of his calling. Notice every single part of this is knowledge of him, his calling, his, his inheritance, his power. It's all about him. Not, it's not actually really what he calls knowledge of you or your issues, your, your problems. It's him, always him. Hope of his calling is the first thing. Second thing is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We'll get to that in a little bit. Third thing is his power toward us who believe. King James says to us word who believe. Those three things. Now we're going to cover those one by one and see how far we get. But they're really, really important. I want you guys to write those down. Meditate on this when you read Ephesians 1. Because if we don't get this, we can't get anything else. It's like Jesus' parable of the sower where he said, if you can't understand the parable of the sower, how can you understand any other parable? If you can't get the basics of who I am and who I am in you, you can't get anything else. So number one, the hope of his calling. Why would there be so much hope in his calling? Well, the calling is, is the same one of the root words from which we get the Greek word for ekklesia, which is the church. It's klesis is the Greek word. It is a calling out. So it's God choosing you out of the world, out of darkness, out, out of corruption and establishing you in his kingdom. It is a calling out of something. So he's saying there is great hope in the fact that he has removed you, plucked you out of the miry clay or the pit of your sin and of the corruption of the world and set your feet on a rock, that rock being Christ. 
So if we grow weary with, jaded over, if we grow apathetic in the understanding that we have been called out of darkness, that we don't understand really the greatness of that idea or that reality. As soon as a Christian gets bored with the basics, you know, they actually don't know them. If you are going to say, oh, I get it. Jesus loves me. God loves me. I've heard that a lot. I get that. No, if that's your response, you don't know that. I've said this before, but the, the, the kind of tenderness the all, that the Lord has always wanted to produce in me that I've always made sure to stay responsive to is sensitivity to something as simple as Jesus loves me. I never want to go a day in my life where hearing that doesn't make me want to cry. Every time I want to hear that, every time I hear that, I want it to move me to compassion, to repentance, to, to praise and to worship. One of the things that hurts me most is to hear a Christian respond apathetically to something like Jesus loves me. Because it means you don't know it. Because when you do know it, it, never fails to enamor you. So the hope of his calling. So if we're going to say, no, I get it. I've, I've, been, I've been called out of darkness. I get that, that I, you know, I, I have an inheritance in heaven. My name is written in heaven. Never get bored with that. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 10, Jesus takes 70 disciples. He sends them out to do his work, to cast out demons, heal the sick. And they come back and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning, lightning from heaven. Nevertheless, rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. What was his point? If when you go out as a follower of Jesus, your enthusiasm is attached to how many miracles he works in your life and you leave aside the importance of the fact that you're a son or daughter of God and that you have a place in his kingdom, then you're missing the point entirely. Let not your enthusiasm be in what he did through you, but who he says you are. Period. That's what he's saying. Let your hope or let your focus be on the hope of his calling, the the glory that there is, the, the, the hope, the expectation, the confidence, the peace, and the comfort that all will, always will be in the fact that you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Never get bored with that, ever. And if you are, I'm saying go back to the basics. Forget everything you're trying to know now. Then he says the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. His inheritance in the saints, the riches of the glory, read that in Colossians. It is the wealth of the beauty. If you look at the literal definitions of the word, the wealth of the fatness of the abundance of the beauty and glory of his inheritance in the saints. So he's saying there's a great wealth. There's a great blessing, a great treasure contained bound up in what is called his inheritance in the saints, which would be in you. So he's inheriting something. And he's inheriting what is in you. Now, if you were called before the foundation of the world and chosen the elect of God in him before time began, I think it's in second Timothy one, like verse nine, where it says that who called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death 
brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So what's being brought to light, what's being exposed is life and immortality. The life part is what could be in you or is in you. So if Christ in you, the hope of glory is the mystery revealed, then what is in me or my potential to have Christ in me is what he's inheriting. Now, interesting, when we talk about inheritance, we, it's usually in reference to, you know, a son or a grandson, for example, inheriting something from a grandfather, whether it be his wealth of riches or something of his possessions, so that this son or grandson might have a more prosperous future and also for his posterity. I think it's so fascinating, though, that if you remove that idea from the human concept and talk about it in the context context of God inheriting something from us, it's completely being flipped around because normally the son inherits from the father. In this case, the father is inheriting from the son. He's inheriting something in me, which means there's something about me, something about you that he wants really, really, really bad. It's so valuable to him, in fact, that it is like the thing he's craving to inherit. There is a wealth of the beauty, the riches of the glory of what is in you that he wants to inherit. Which means there is nothing that would ever happen to us and nothing that we would do, nothing that would be done to us that would ever negate the fact that you are valuable to him more than anything else that is in existence. So when people think like, you know, God can't use me because I've experienced this or I can't do this because I did that and wounds and scars and pain and everything that's been done to me, whatever it is that the excuse is. He's saying the whole time there is still the riches of the glory of what is in you that I can inherit. He wants you. So remember the whole time it's knowledge of him, knowledge of his calling, knowledge of his inheritance, but don't skip over the fact that when he says his inheritance, it's about what's in you and it's Christ in you. So when we think of like God speaking in a thundering voice out of heaven over Christ, when he comes out of the Jordan river, being baptized by John the Baptist and this voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's very clear that God really wanted his son, Jesus. He, it was his beloved son. He was well pleased with Christ. And yet the same thing is essentially fundamentally spoken over us when he's saying there's an inheritance in you that he really, really wants, that he's very well pleased with, that grabs his attention constantly. So never get bored with the fact, never lose sight of the fact that he really, really, really wants you. Really. And then he says, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, if we were to stop there, it's quite informative enough, but if you keep reading, he says, according to the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, but no, but I get it. You know, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. No, if that's how you're responding to it, you don't know 
You don't know it. Same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, this is not just some fluke resurrection. He was marred beyond any man so that he was completely unrecognizable. He just looked like a mutilated chunk of flesh. They laid his body in a tomb and wrapped it up. And all of a sudden, three days later, he doesn't rise just alive. Otherwise, if that were the case, he'd be walking out of the tomb looking really not pleasant. (laughs) Yeah. His body is not only completely restored, but it's glorified so that they couldn't recognize him after he rose again. That power lives in you. Now, when Jesus took your sin, it says that he condemned your sin in his flesh so that we might rise with him in newness of life. So much so that what you were cannot be recognized by you or anyone else in your life. So if you think certain aspects of your past are going to be carried into the present, into your present and somehow affect you or others around you, you're not believing the gospel. The point is that he became unrecognizable in your sin so that he rose unrecognizable to the world that once knew us as sinners. So they would know us as completely new with no evidence, stain or scar of what happened in the past period. That's the gospel. That's redemption. Now he's saying that's the power that lives in you. And, you know, so I'm reading this, right? And I'm praying through it. And I'm just like, Lord, it is so rich that I feel like my, I can't get my brain wrapped around it. It's like, why would Paul tell me to pray for something that I, my brain can't comprehend? How can I understand this? And first Corinthians talks about, it says the natural man cannot perceive the things of God. They're foolishness to him. Neither can he know know them because they're spiritually discerned. That's like 1 Corinthians 2.14. So, your natural man is not going to get it. You're just going to have to be okay with that. Your, 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 you know, peanut brain was not designed to be able to completely grasp this, okay? However, he says, you can know it enough to be able to live it. And if we can have this power in this present life, even seeing him in a mirror dimly, which is what 1 Corinthians 13 says. Think of the power that there is in knowing this completely in the age to come. But that's for later. Right now, Titus 2, for example, says this, the grace of God that has appeared to, that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. This present age. So that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And it says that Jesus has redeemed us that we might be his special people, his special possession. First Peter calls you a peculiar people. You're a royal priesthood, chosen generation, a holy nation to proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I can imagine why Paul is saying, this is my prayer for the church above anything and everything else. He does not pray about their issues, which they had. They had plenty, especially if you read first Corinthians. I mentioned this last Sunday, half the book of first Corinthians seems like a rebuke. They had so many issues 
and really bad issues too. A lot of sexual stuff that he's like, dude, you guys are really messed up in this area. And yet you read Ephesians. Look, these are Gentiles that come out of the most gratuitous and overtly perverted culture you can possibly imagine. It's messed up. And he's writing, doesn't even address any of that. And just says, I just want you to know the hope of his calling, having called you out, the riches of the glory of what is in you that he's inheriting and the exceeding greatness of his power towards you who believe. I just want you to know that because that fixes all the other stuff. Because how can you continue to be stuck like a slave to sin and know that you're called out of sin at the same time? Can't. So if you know that you've been called out, you can't go back. But if you look back, you can. How can you ever doubt your value or your worth if the creator of the universe says that there's a treasure in you so invaluable that he sacrificed everything that he had and heaven went bankrupt to win you back. If you, if you believe that you cannot be depressed. Sure. Some of us face that there's a temptation to feel broken, to feel anxious, to feel depressed at times. I get that it's real issues, but it's still a work of the enemy. I'm not downplaying anybody's issues. I'm just saying, why are we focusing on magnifying the problem as though that will lead us to the solution? Then he says, exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Peter's living it. Acts chapter nine, right? Jesus, the Christ heals you. No doubt no hesitation in that. If I'm in the room, Jesus is in the room, period. So when we face a problem, whatever it is, doesn't matter the magnitude, we face an issue in life that the world says is insurmountable. And you can face it and say, look, if Jesus was here, he would have the answer and the solution. There would be no problem. So why do I believe that I can't offer that same solution if Christ lives in me? But then people get Christians all the time. And I know I'm going to get blamed for this because it's just reality that People will call that pride and say, well, you think you're God. No, I don't think I'm God, but God lives in me. In fullness. If you go into Ephesians 3, it says the same thing, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. You know, the width and length and depth and height, the, to know the love of Christ, the love of Christ. So simple, that passes knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. Do you realize it's the Bible says the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. And yet it says you can, you can hold his fullness, but the universe can't. If you imagine the whole universe in the span of his hand and it's still immeasurably small, the heaven of heavens can't contain him. And yet he says, my fullness can fit in you. Now don't say you believe that. Just because your mind went, wow, that's so cool. You believe that when you live it. You believe that when you live it. Because Peter did. He who believes on me, the works I do, he will do also. He's not saying if you try really hard to believe, maybe eventually you'll work, you'll work, work your way into doing what I do. No, he's saying if you believe at all, 
you will do what I do. So it's not a matter of how intensely you believe, it's just whether you believe at all. He keeps it simple. He who believes, period. The works that I do, he will do also. So if you're not doing his works, I'm saying go back to the basics. Go back to the elementary principles. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 40 years, doesn't matter. Maturity is not measured by how much you know. It's not measured by age. In fact, there's a, a young man called Elihu in the book of Job who shows up after. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I have a feeling this might make some of you feel very convicted. <laughs> so Job loses everything, right? The temptation is for him to go, nobody's had it as bad as I have, which happens to people all the time, right? They lose something, man, my life's terrible. So Job has this debate with all of his friends, and they're like, look, we're the old guys, we're the elders, we've been through this stuff. And Job's like, no, I'm a worm in the dirt, and I might as well be cast out as God. I, I just completely abhor the day I was even born. And they're like, look, you still have hope and this, and you should believe this and believe that. I've got great advice, and you've got 30 chapters of them just trying to give him their counsel and their advice. And then this young man shows up who's probably about like 20 somethings, maybe even younger, walks into the room and it's, he said, I've been listening to your conversation the whole time. 30 chapters of this conversation could have been over a few days. In fact, it's such an exhaustive conversation. It's like they're not even sleeping. They're talking through all this stuff. And this young man is listening, sitting in the corner, listening to the whole thing. He shows up after Job has vented all of his complaints and he says, look, I've been listening the whole time. And in short, he basically says, you guys are stupid. He said, age, years, does not always mean wisdom. Because you've got 30 chapters of them trying to reason their way into a solution for Job. And this guy, Elihu, shows up and just says, I know I'm a young man. I know I'm not as old as you are. But here's what I think. He goes on to explain what he thinks. It's about one chapter. They're silenced. Then God shows up in the next chapter and rebukes Job personally. So Elihu was like the guy who ushered in a rebuke of God to Job that made all the previous 30 chapters obsolete. Because one guy said, it's not about how old you are. It's not about how much you think you know. It's just whether you know the basics. That's also why in Matthew 18, where Jesus said, if you cannot come to me like a little child, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And he then says that he who is like a little child in my kingdom is the greatest. That word greatest in Greek literally means the oldest. So he says, the younger you are, the older you are. Try to get your mind around that. If you come to me like an infant child, you're the greatest or eldest in the kingdom of heaven. So all these 40, 50, 60 years that sometimes people have walking with the Lord, that's awesome. That's amazing. Love that. 
But if we can't just get down the things that we learn in Sunday school, none of it's going to mean anything. That's why when you have Jesus teaching his disciples in three and a half years, they're doing all that Jesus did together with the church. And sometimes it takes people decades upon decades upon decades, years upon years upon years in seminary. And Jesus took this motley crew off the street that's made of tax collectors, zealots, and fishermen. And three and a half years, he walks around with them and they're doing what he did. Three and a half years. Interestingly enough, in that culture, you were taken as a disciple or apprentice of someone on average at about the age of 15 or 16. These disciples were not old guys. Most of the movies, we see them with long beards and they look aged and seasoned and bronzed by the sun being fishermen. No, these, these guys were kids, you guys. That's why like the, the books of Revelation and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written by the Apostle John. And scholars will say he was probably like in his 90s, even as old as 100 when he wrote those books. And if you follow that timeline back, that means when he was a disciple of Jesus, he was like 20 years old. Sometimes even some people say younger. These were not old guys. At the youngest, some of them are probably teenagers. And back then, you were considered a man when you hit 13 as a boy. So I wouldn't be surprised if they were even that young. He teaches them for three and a half years, as I mentioned, and they're doing what he did. They don't have the status. They don't have the education. They don't have the age. They don't have the achievements. They don't have the medals. And yet Jesus wanted them. So don't think that your age is an advantage or, or a disadvantage. Don't think that the time that you've spent in school or in education is an advantage or a disadvantage because the reality is that it's not. And if an education is going to make you believe that you have the ability or the right to do something that ultimately you really can't do in your own power, then the education has just been a sabotage to your walk with God, not a help to it. Because reality is no matter how much we learn, we, we, we can't do it on our own. That's why we need him. So it has to be his power in us. So that's why he says, boast in your infirmities, the power of Christ may rest on you. Not many mighty, not many wise are called. But the weak things, the base things, things that are despised, things that are not to put to nothing, the things that are. There's a psalm, I think it's Psalm like 33. It says, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. This is like verse 16, I think. No king is saved by the multitude of an army, nor is a mighty man saved by his great strength, and a horse is a vain hope for safety, referring to cavalry in battle, right? A horse is a vain hope for safety, neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. And it says, but on this one, he will look, God will look, those who hope in his mercy. So simple. Grace, mercy. Is love, rooted and grounded in love. The most basic things. That's what makes you strong, he says. And that's what Paul covers in Ephesians. That's all it is. He's saying it's basics. That you were called, you were chosen, you're valuable, and the power of God lives in you. 
Now, when we really get this, not trying to understand it logically or cognitively, but when it really gets in our heart and you know that it's in your heart by how you live. So then you start living in this. And with this being the basics of Christianity, you can understand why Peter would be so confident in walking into a room where there's a guy who's paralyzed and just says, Jesus, the Christ heals you. And so this, this made me so convicted because I just was like, Lord, I know and I trust that you've been guiding me and leading me all these years. All these years, gosh. Whatever, I won't go there. Not very long. <laughs> these, these years you've been guiding me, leading me, and you know all these things that I've learned and all this scripture that I've memorized and all these things that I can quote and say I believe and all these things that I can, I can articulate and teach and the books that I've written. And I'm just like, but am I fulfilling John 14, 12? That's got to be the question you got to ask yourself. You look at, if you see what I see, you'll do what I do. We really got to get this because I forget asking for the fire of God and all that stuff. What's the purpose? The purpose is so that Christ could live in you. The whole purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not so that you can have a prayer language. That's a part of it. But the point was so that you would have a power to be a witness. If you don't have the power to be a witness or don't want the power to be the witness or don't really want Christ to live in you or too ashamed to, for Christ to live in you, then don't go asking for tongues. Don't go asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the fire of God because it's not going to help you anyway. It'll just be wasted. All of us have been given the same thing. Oh, okay. Yes. So there's this parable. In Matthew, I think it's 20 or 21. The parable of the minas, it's called. Jesus hires these guys at the beginning of the day, early in the morning, and says, go out and work in my fields, and I'll give you, it says they agreed upon their payment. I'll give you it at the end of the workday. Then he goes out in the marketplace at four different times and hires other men, other guys, later and later in the day. So a, a few of these guys he hired at like, I think it's like four hours before the end of the shift or three hours, something like that. Not, not very long. Was it one hour? Okay, one hour. One hour before the end of the shift. Then he gathers them all up at the end and gives them all the same pay. And you can imagine all the older, more educated people who've worked longer and harder people come to Jesus or the, yeah, it would be Jesus, but it's the master in this parable. And they say, how come you gave them? They've been working for an hour. How come you gave them the same pay as us? And we've been working all day. And Jesus, the master, Jesus, said something very profound, which is, is your eye evil because I am good? What's the point? Is my goodness producing sin in you? So when I show up with power, with grace, and with love in someone's life, let's take, for example, a brand new believer or a little child. Is my goodness toward them causing you to be envious, jealous, bitter? If the goodness or love of God in anybody manifests in anyone else's life produces a negative emotion in you, Jesus says your eyes become evil. Not, his goodness is not the problem, but it's how we're seeing it. Thinking that you may deserve more because you've been more faithful for longer. So he says you got to put that out of your, out of your beliefs. 
soon as possible. Don't let your eye be evil because he is good. Just give me a moment. I'm going to just take a moment to be quiet here and see if there's anything else. This microphone's about to die, it looks like, so I'll keep it quick. <laughs> One of the things that will make Christians more persecuted by religion than anything, if not the, the thing that will make us the most persecuted, is exactly what the apostles lived. If you can read about it in Ephes or Acts chapter 4, they marveled because these men were uneducated and untrained. And it says, but... They knew that they had been with the Lord. That's what it says. They marveled that they were uneducated and untrained. And then they remembered that they were with the Lord. Which means really what we're going for, regardless of the training, regardless of the education. If we can't learn what it means just to be with him, none of it's going to mean anything anymore. So I'm saying if you can't just get it worked out in your life to be able to go into a room and shut a door and be with him, no distractions, you and your Bible and the presence of God, whatever it else it is that you include in that time. And if we can't be confident that that is our hope, that is our goal to stay there, that is the calling on us, the upward call of God, Philippians 3 calls it, that we might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Knowledge of him. That's like the number one thing that will be the most destructive for you in, in getting bored of, which would be just this with him concept. I don't care what you know. I don't care what somebody has taught you or what you've learned. If you in Christ in private is not what you crave and desire more than anything else. Then every step that you try to take, even in serving the Lord, will be destitute of love. And in the end, 1 Corinthians 13 says it will profit you nothing. It even says you can be a martyr. Give your body to be burned, and if you have, have not love, it profits you nothing. So go back to the basics. That's where he's taken me. And I've noticed, even just this week, a change in my confidence, my boldness, just the, the settledness, the peace. We did some street evangelism this past Thursday in Cub Foods in Minneapolis, and, and just seeing people and the love that, that I'm starting to see is growing, all because 
I just decided to focus on a scripture that I've read many times, but instead of just reading over it, I decided to just soak in it. That's the with him part. What I'm going to take away, and what I would encourage you guys to take away, is that do not think you know something until you live it. Don't ever, I wouldn't even go to entertaining a thought that you know something if you're not really living it. Because if you're not living it, he's saying, go back, start over. Start over. And you'll see the effect it has on your life. You'll see how it heals, how it restores, how it makes new. It's good to have you guys stand, please. I want to pray for you before we close.